Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is February the 9th, 2022. We are getting closer to that day, that infamous day, that awful day. No, I'm not talking about the Super Bowl, which is bad enough, which is on Sunday. But immediately following the Super Bowl is, of course, Valentine's Day, the day of love. It's five days off. And um, for our viewers, particularly the Lit Hub viewers, you've got to think of what to give. Um, Kate Spade has lots of cute things, uh, shoes and cups with little hearts on for the men perhaps you can get something even cuter in red for people watching uh, they see what you see for people viewing it's image of a model in a in a red uh, in some red underwear some very brief red underwear of course for the politically correct and i hope we have many of those listening to this show uh valentine's day isn't only about male female love it's about celebrating platonic male love. So that's uh, also important to bear in mind when we prepare for Valentine's Day. For the book lovers, of course, uh, it's nice to give a book. Uh, If we were to give a book, it might be nice to give love in the time of cholera. Marquez's great masterpiece uh, made into a movie in 2007 by uh, Mike Newell. the, the movie, uh, the, the book takes place on the Magdalena River in Colombia. Love stories need uh, appropriate settings. Uh, might have even been uh, based on Aracataca, which was Marquez's birthplace. I know all this stuff about Colombia because we had Jordan Salama on the show recently. He's written a wonderful book about journeying up Colombia's Magdalena River. And he, uh, he entitled the books an excellent travelogue. Every day the river changes. You might say the same thing about love. We're not today talking about love in the time of cholera, but we're talking about another book with a very similar title, but perhaps rather different message. Love in the Time of Contagion, a diagnosis by Laura Kipnis. She's a doctor, but not a medical doctor perhaps a cultural doctor with her finger on our pulse when it comes to the impact of COVID and our current contagion on love. Um, Laura is joining me. Where are you, Laura? I'm in New York City. Because in the book, um, you write about your apartment as this stage for a, I don't know whether you call it a love affair with your boyfriend. It's certainly the central stage in your book. Do you think uh, books and movies need a place when they're about love, like uh, Marcus's book about uh, love in the time of cholera? Well, that's an interesting question. And I wanted to say you do sound like a disappointed romantic in your intro. But uh, the why, place- why, 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 why? Oh, there was something in the tone, a sardonic tone about Valentine's Day and what we're all going about to be subjected to. But, um, does, that the me, does that make me, I'm not going to get let you get away with that one, Laura. Okay. Does that make me a disappointed romantic? It might make, actually make me a romantic because you could argue, and I don't want to make this only about Valentine's Day, that Valentine's Day has nothing to do with romance. 
Oh, that's for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it has to do with so many things, but I guess that would be a different discussion. But I am interested, I will go back to the setting question because um, the setting for the book was an apartment in Harlem, a one bedroom apartment that I um, had sheltered in with my long term boyfriend. Um, but we are of that living apart together sort of couple. And I had maybe 20 years ago, written a different book, Against Love, a polemic, that was a screed against coupled domesticity. So the setting was both an apartment, a one-bedroom apartment in Harlem that we sheltered in for six months together during lockdown, but also, I mean, a setting of a kind of, um, you know, as many people were forced into these domestic situations that were not of your choosing during uh, COVID times. Is that one of the points in your book? Um, you, you had a piece in uh, Lit Hub uh, yesterday. What has COVID done to our romantic relationships? Has it forced us to live in one bedroom apartments in Harlem next to people we're not perhaps entirely happy with? Um, I, I don't know if that was the general condition, but I, you know, certainly people found themselves um, having to face that question of, you know, whether they were alone or together, like, you know, what are my conditions going to be? And would I have chosen these conditions if I'd known that a pandemic was coming? So, um, you know, in my case, it wasn't, I mean, one of the things that interested me a lot about that situation was how much that played out, um, like how much psychodrama and acting out and anxiety and neurosis, you know, given what we were all living through this um, pandemic and how, much the couple form or your relationships became this site for those kinds of psychodramas. Yeah, and this the central psych psychodrama in love in the time of contagion is with your your long time. I don't know if he was a long time boyfriend. Is he still your boyfriend? Yeah, yeah, but it had been oh. over a decade. I mean, and, my uh, what does he do? By the way, I, I was guessing he's an academic like you, but maybe I'm wrong. History professor, yeah. Yeah. And does he have and a I'm name? I'm not a doctor, by the way. I'm I'm just a writer and a former uh, Well, that makes me more respectful of you. You're not a doctor. What's his I, name? I live for your respect. Uh, his name's Jim. And uh, you lived together in this small apartment during COVID. You, you write in the book about the intimacy that this encouraged in both good and a bad way when it comes to romance. There's an episode in the book when you throw a can of Diet Coke at him, you you remember that he hates being patted on his head, so you spend your time patting him on the head. Is your relationship better or worse uh, in the two years since COVID? Yes. <laughs> I always think that's the appropriate answer to those kind of either-or questions. But, it, you know, I should add that the book is about my own relationship, but two other chapters are about um, other people's relationships and conversations I had with them about their intimacies. And also, um, <clears throat> I had put up a, a survey online and queried, got about 200 answers, asking other people how their relationships had changed and what they had learned about love and would they have sheltered with this same person if they were together. So, you know, it's both about my own situation, but also, you know, the larger social situation and kind of going back and forth between those. Yeah, no, and I, and I take that point and we'll come on to your broader cultural observations of the fate of love and relationships in, in, in the time of contagion. Uh, but do you think um, 
that experience, as you said, you wrote a book against love. You also uh, wrote a book on men, notes from an ongoing investigation. What did the, the two-year, what has the two-year COVID contagion, what has it taught you both about love personally and men? The, you know, I think this, you know, being faced with our own extinction, you know, couldn't help but make you think in these very broad terms you know, about your, your own life and choices and who you were with and the future. And, you know, it made me wonder about how this would, in this broad sense, change how we felt about love. Because, you know, in those times, especially early on in, in New York, things were kind of dire for a while and you've got this kind of collapsing infrastructure. You know, you were forced to rely on another person and solely another person, you know, in ways that, that, that we weren't used to. and you know, you talked about the, the head padding thing, and I'm kind of making a joke about the ways that that kind of reliance on each other, like I found these weird, unexpected wells of sadism welling up in me. So there was this back and forth between, you know, this intense reliance on each other. And also, like I said, the kind of psychodrama and acting out that was unexpected. So, I mean, I did learn that about myself. I mean, none of us were prepared to be, you know, homesteaders in the middle of Manhattan, you know, searching for staples. So, you know, it makes you think about what your inner resources are and, and that of your partner. So, you know, my partner, boyfriend is like, you know, I think the selection criteria is that he's like an infinitely interesting person. I'm never bored. It didn't mean he was the most practical person, you know, on earth. And, um, you know, I think at one point I described him as feloniously irresponsible. So Which you, you, know, you, you, you acknowledge that you find that in some ways attractive. Oh, for sure. Yeah. But I mean, also the things that are attracted to you that attract you and the person are also the things that like in this situation, you often wanted to carve out of them with a steak knife. So it was like that. It was always double-edged. Like the thing that you're attracted to is also the thing that drove you nuts. So that's, I guess, what I learned in a nutshell. And you wanted to, you acknowledged that you wanted to teach him stuff. Uh, you wanted to get him to stop drinking, uh, which wasn't very successful. I read that little bit out to my wife last night as I was reading your book in bed. And, Over and a she, glass of wine? Uh, well, I'm not allowed wine in the bedroom, but... Um, okay. Um, that's what marriage is. You're not married, are you, Laura? No. Um, committed. Committed. In all um, well, when you talk about committed, uh, you also talk about love and in, 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 in terms of cellmates. Is that prison or mental asylum? <laughs> you know, again, both. And what's the difference? You know, this goes back to against love and you know, I was just interested in all the ways that in these domestic situations, people do become kind of cops and, you know, in private investigators and Sherlock Holmes, and you're kind of seeking out evidence that the other person has, has aired in some way. And, you know, I think the substance abuse issues, which are both kind of funny, but also not so much, you know, a lot of people were dealing with that uh, during COVID, you know, because we were kind of trying to feel better about stuff and that kind of stuff, I think not just in my own household, but others became, you know, like an issue. And we you, asked you know, me, yeah, sorry, go on. On. No, go I was on. just gonna say like, you know, you're, you're finding evidence because you have so much less privacy, you know, particularly in our case, we're in this one bedroom apartment. 
um, having been used to having these separate uh, abodes. Your boyfriend at one point, Jim, calls you the last Puritan. I, I think you were amused by that. Are you the last Puritan? Well, you know, certainly not my reputation. I mean, and I think he was actually referring to the actual Puritans as opposed to the way we use it as a, a I don't know, metaphor. Um, you know, I mean, I suppose my reputation is as a sort of libertine, you know, who's written against, like, say, the professor-student conduct, you know, relationship mm. prohibition. You've even written a book, How to Become a Scandal, Adventures yeah. in Bad Behavior. I've always been kind of interested in, in bad behavior and drawn to, well, drawn to stories of downfall for strange reasons. And then, um, but yeah, as I say, you know, the Puritanism, I suppose, would not be my, my public reputation or the kinds of books that I've written. Well, isn't it rather shocking these days to be a Puritan? No one wants to be one. I guess I'll have to adopt it then. Do you think that he he his view of you changed in, in in the couple of years you spent living together, cohabitating, being cellmates? That's interesting. You know, one of the things I think about coupledom is that you develop a kind of personality in relation to the other person. I mean, you're not just the person you are. So in our couple, and I make jokes about like I end up playing the role of superego because he has appropriated the territory of, you know, the id. And I don't like that role. But so in our in our relationship, you know, and again, I think this would be surprising to people given the kind of stuff I've written, which is maybe sort of pro-id and pro-libertine. I'm like the superego, which I loathe. It's boring. So that, you know, that side emerges. And I suppose maybe in his case, the opposite, like the adolescent emerges. So that's interesting about coupledom, you know, there are these dynamics that become kind of fixed. And I dislike that about coupledom. We are speaking with Laura Kipnis, the bad girl of academic cultural criticism, a new Thank book, you. Love in the Time of Contagion, a diagnosis is bad, controversial, and very amusing and entertaining. Um, it got a good review in the New York Times, the most priggish of newspapers. I think they went out of their way, Laura. They bent backwards not to criticize your work. A less good review in the uh, in the Los Angeles Times suggesting that you uh, you forgot about the childcare crisis, um, uh, keeping women out of the workforce. And the LA Times review suggests that, first of all, she accuses you of burglarizing Marx, which I thought was quite a compliment. Um, but that's my own line. I say I am burglarizing. I know, I know, I know. And uh, you, she says your book misses the opportunity to how to speak of how a, a lack of sexual desire might reflect the realities the pandemic has laid bare. What well, was interesting, actually, about the book, there wasn't a lot of sex in it. It's difficult to write about sex um, if you're writing about a relationship that you're actually in. You know, I didn't read the LA Times review because I had the impression it was that sort of review that's about why didn't you write the book I would have written yeah. and also harping about you not writing things you actually did write about. So, um, you know, that stuff is better ignored. But if you want a book about, um, if you want a book about how the childcare crisis is keeping women out of the workforce, do not read uh, Laura Kipnis's new book, Love in the Time of Contagion, but it is very entertaining. Uh, after the break, Laura, I've, I've spent some time interrogating you about your relationship with Jim in your apartment, the central 
stage, I guess, in love, love in the time of contagion. But as you suggest, there's a lot more to the book. And after after the break, Laura, I want to talk about the broader cultural context of love in the time of contagion, how it's changed our view of sex and romance. So we'll be back in about 60 seconds. Hold tight, everybody. That's good. Hi, everyone. Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this Keenon show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it, but I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keenon show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub page um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, if you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live, you can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube page. So whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now back to Keenon. We are back with Laura Kipnis, the author of Love in the Time of Contagion, a wonderfully entertaining new book out just in time for Valentine's Day. If you want to buy your loved one a book, which will probably offend and upset them, which is probably what you're supposed to do on Valentine's Day. Uh, Laura writes about um, love in the time of contagion, which is, of course, COVID over the last couple of years. It was also the time of Me Too. Um, Laura, is there a connection, do you think, between COVID, the contagion, the pandemic, and these disruptive cultural movements, Black Lives Matter and Me Too, which have sprung up over the last two or three years? You know, one of the reasons that I titled the book in the time of contagion, as opposed to just the time of COVID, is that I was interested in this larger sense of contagion. You know, the ways that I think increasingly, maybe at this moment in this post Me Too mo moment, I think that people have a sense of other people as contagious and as dangerous, and particularly in the heterosexual context, which is mostly what Me Too is dealing with, you know, this idea that men are germs and, you know, the, the, for a lot of heterosexual women, maybe germs you don't occasionally mind, you know, getting horizontal with. So, but the sense of people and people's bodies and proximities to people's bodies as being kind of harmful to us does seem to me sort of recent, you know, particularly, um, and I think it is maybe 
partly a, a long-term after effect of, of AIDS and HIV in this way that sex became seen as, you know, this previous virus made sex into something far more harmful than it had been in, say, like the post-sexual revolution era. So that sense of contagion, you know, is kind of more like widespread and metaphorical than just, uh, you know, this current situation that we're in. You write, uh, you, you wrote, as I said, a book about men. I, I wonder whether men have been more affected in this age of contagion by women. Um, Harvey Weinstein comes up a lot in your book. I can't remember how you describe him as the, the symbol of, of something or other. But in, Weinstein, in, in Weinstein, you know, here we have a, an image of him on his walker. I mean, physically, he's been humiliated. He's been humiliated deservedly, I guess, on every front. He's in jail and probably spend the rest of his life in jail. Um, do you think it would be fair to say, uh, in, in, a, in, in an odd kind of way, um, the contagion did the same to Trump? It humiliated him, forced him out of office. He even got COVID himself, as Weinstein did. Do you think men have been more affected uh, in our time of contagion than women, or is that a generalization? The power dynamics are shifting, and Me Too certainly brought about like these institutional changes in which men have been more unseated, and these new kinds of regimes or like new codes of behavior have been implemented at institutional levels in in ways that you know has caused all sorts of downfall of once powerful figures. You know, Weinstein. Obviously, I think I call him patient the patient zero. And you know, there, it was this narrative arc that he was one of the first people who did get COVID um, after he was in uh, remanded to Rikers after his conviction. And so, so there is some justice, isn't there? Uh, it seemed, seemed like it, yeah. In that, if anyone in that deserves case. COVID, it's him. Um, okay. <laughs> you you don't agree. Um, I don't disagree. I, you know, I know there's a lot of like finger wagging about, say, you know, us moralizing about people or feeling good about the people, say, who are unvaccinated and then and then get it. So I have to, I would have to think harder about how I feel about disease as a kind of, you know, punishment. Yeah, I, I take your point, but uh, it is. I mean, what about the the physical humiliation of Weinstein? Uh, here yeah. we have an image of him on his walker. A lot of people, when he showed up to court looking like a 90-year-old man, said that he was putting it on. But I'm not sure he was. Has, it been, has there been a kind of general physical humiliation of the male species over the last two or three years? Yeah, I spent some time talking about that. Um, you know, this exposure of the male body. And I start out one of the chapters talking about these effigies of Trump that went up before the 2016 election yeah. where he was, you know, had no balls. The statues, which were made by this uh, anarchist collective, were titled The Emperor Has No Balls. And the same thing, weirdly, with Weinstein, these... Um, they show these photographs of his nude body to the jury in which he also has some kind of weird disease of the testicles. <laughs> and there, it just did seem like this desire, yes, absolutely, to humiliate men in public and in these bodily ways as a kind of, um, I don't know, retribution for, I guess, millennia of patriarchy. But I do well, think- as, 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 as the last Puritan, Laura, shouldn't <laughs> you have been happy with that? I'm unhappy. I, I mean, it has been, kind of exhilarating to see these changes and Black Lives Matter included to see 
the power dynamics and the consent to these existing arrangements shifting. So, you know, I write about Me Too a lot, partly because I also am kind of conflicted about these new uh, forms of regulation and surveillance, like in, in workplaces, some of which is necessary and some of which is, you know, you get fired for telling the wrong joke. So there's, you know, revolutions often have this overreach. And I think that has also happened. Yeah, as I said, you're, you're a rebel. You're not normally associated with American patriotism, but you do say in the book that perhaps for the first time you were proud to be an American when there were all these effigies of uh, a half-naked Trump being uh, pulled around the streets in America. You also you also talk about something I wasn't familiar with, but it's kind of interesting, uh, big dick energy uh, and uh, the sort of, I guess, the, the male cultural rebellion against Weinstein and Trump. What is that and why is that interesting? I'm not totally sure it's a rebellion. That's what was weird about it is you've got this like meme going around the internet about big dick energy. So there's a kind of weird celebration of a sort of tradition, this traditional harbinger, if that's the right word, icon of, of masculinity and masculine power. Although in this iteration, I guess women also supposedly can have big dick energy. But you know, it, it's a symbol that was kind of propped up by this feature of male anatomy, you know, if, if we're talking about like phallic power. So I think that these are really confused times uh, in terms of what's happening, who's in power, who has power. And, you know, in the post Me Too era, you've got women enjoying this power, oftentimes exercised via like online modes of bringing men down with accusations some are true, maybe some aren't. No, and it's true. not bringing them down sexually. It's um, bringing them down uh, professionally. In, in professionally. Um, well, you can ruin Henry someone's Kissinger life. comes up in the book. Um, I didn't expect him in your book. Um, looking a little bit like a, some, uh, a suntanned Harvey Weinstein. Um, Kissinger comes up because you critique him or you critique his idea of sex as power or power as sexual um is is that the major casualty if you like of the me too movement this cultural shift in this intimacy of power and sex and particularly phallic sexual power is that changing well, that is, that's the question. So Kissinger was famously the author of this adage, um, power is an aphrodisiac, you know, which I think he meant for men. And, but, you know, also a way for not necessarily attractive men, and this would be true of Weinstein, you know, to get hot women, yeah. um, you know, because I think good looking men don't need aphrodisiacs, you know, like. Yeah, and you say in the book, this was interesting anecdote, that women don't object as much to unwanted advances from good-looking men as from ugly men, which is an interesting insight from a woman. It was something people were muttering about. You know, I'm always interested in those conversations where somebody then like looks around to see who's listening. So it was in the early Me Too days, I thought, you know, you'd have these conversations with women friends and they would say things. And that was one of the startling and interesting things that everybody's doing this kind of internal calculation about their own kind of status in the, you know, a hierarchy of, of attractiveness and that being hit on by somebody not attractive was seen as more insulting. 
So yeah, so I learned a lot about that. And I mean, I think that there are these kind of, how would you say like, uh, things that haven't changed and things that have changed. And so the moment is confusing for that reason, maybe it's always the case, but there are a lot of traditional modes, you know, I mean, look at like Melania Trump, you know, I mean, yeah. somebody who, you know, is like this emblem of sexual barter, successfully sexually bartered herself to this really hideous man. Um, but then is also sort of seen weirdly as this feminist icon when she won't hold his hand in public. You know, so we're looking for these symbols. Yeah. Things are confused and they're in. Absolutely. Uh, I, yeah. I privately refer to Melania as malaria, probably is a bit unkind. <laughs> um, love in the time of malaria. Um, but you're right, uh, of course, um, Laura. Um, we're living in very confusing times. People the issue of sexual identity, of course, of gendered identity. And many people are wearing different hats. You, you write, for example, about um, Asia Argento, um, Anthony Bourdain's former girlfriend, who appears both in a, as, a, as a classic male and female in this psychodrama of love in the time of, 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 of contagion. I, I think she's a particularly attractive or interesting character, isn't she? Yeah, very much so. And, you know, that was, I guess, part of the um, equality move in the later stages of Me Too that women could be brought down to. And, you know, she, one of the things that, you know, was, I mean, sort of horrible in her case, I mean, she both paid this, like, huge payoff to this um, <laughs> teenager who she supposedly, well, I guess she did have sex with, but then also he exposed her, you know, so isn't it supposed to be one or the other? So well, you know, it's never I mean, one or the other. Isn't that your point in your work? And and that's the problem. It's never I mean, one or the other. There's no honor among blackmailers. I, I didn't know. I, I'll thank you for that. Well, check. I mean, one or the other in terms of her being either the victim or the heroine of this whole thing. Right. Yeah, right. I, I mean, I just was thinking about the honor among, you know, blackmailers, um, which... Yeah. So you're not keen on her. Yeah. Did you see the uh, the Anthony Bourdain movie? The no, uh, no, she came out of it. They they really, so to speak, ganged up on her. I, I'm not sure. Yeah. She, there must be something about her that people don't like. People who know her, I don't know what it is. But and um, he was supposedly, you know, he was the object originally of that big dick energy meme. Like, he's yeah, he's a cult. I mean, someone needs to write a book against. Maybe that can be your next book, Laura. Okay. Against. Okay. Uh, Anthony Bourdain. He's become the Mother Teresa, I think, of the <laughs> 21st century. Hitchens wrote the book against Mother yeah. Teresa. Someone needs to write a book bringing, um, Anthony, bringing Bourdain, Anthony yeah. Bourdain. There must be something bad about him. Well, uh, you know, I think he became very sentimentalized once he killed himself and apparently was kind of, you know, could be kind of a dick in, in person. Uh, you write a lot about narcissism, both sort of ironically and also seriously as perhaps the core contagion, or at least our perception of the core contagion of the 2020s. What, were your, what was your conclusion on narcissism? Is it an invention? Is it myth or is it real? Yeah, all of those, once again, I mean, if you start reading about it, you know, it can be defined so variously. And one of the things that interested me is it's, you know, this complaint or diagnosis that everybody makes about everyone else, you know, like, so everywhere you go, somebody is talking about somebody else's narcissism, you mm. know, of course, not your own. 
But you know, I do think that there are also these kind of shifts in the kinds of selves that we are and the style of selfhood. And you know, the style of selfhood now, and particularly given online culture and everything, it's it is so much more performative, you know, and so much more about putting your emotions out in public as opposed to like these old style heroes like the private detective or the cowboy, you know, who kept their emotions to themselves. I mean, those were male figures, of course. But so, I mean, I think there are these large scale social shifts in personality style, you know, like Christopher Lash wrote Culture of Narcissism back around, I think maybe 1980 or so. So I am very interested in that, like what does it both feel like, you know, to be a self and um, the kinds of cultural genres, like say, you know, reality TV in our case being this cultural genre and dominance that really both fosters and solicits those mm. kinds of personalities. I mean, Lash was warning us about this, Daniel right. Bell in the 70s and 80s, but nothing right. much has changed. It's just happened now, isn't it? I think it's um, everything they said. And, you know, they were both kind of leftist conservatives or, you know, cultural, how would they be like economic radicals and cultural conservatives? So, you know, those and those figures attract me because I find myself also politically kind of in between. Attract you intellectually, not sexually, right? I've never met either of them. No, given Um, that we're talking about romance. Yeah, thanks. There's also a a generational quality to your book. Um, I had um, Jill Filipovich who's become, I guess, a self-appointed spokesman for the younger generation on the show. Uh, you spend the last part of your book describing the on particularly the the sexual the online sexual antics of one of your graduate students, um, which to me I think and 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 you said the same thing got really boring. Is there a generational shift? Do you see it as a as a professor with access to a lot of younger people when it comes to love in the time of COVID? Yeah, uh, she was an undergrad student, but we stayed in touch. So she's now late 20s, maybe 27. And I should say Jill wrote a very nice review of, of Unwanted Advances. So shout out to Jill. Thank you. But the student I wrote about, so we ended up having these like protracted Zoom conversations, you know, which was a way during lockdown that you had this opportunity to have these kind of intimacies. I mean, not sexual but, uh, you know, there was a kind of allure to me about her life and her talking about her love life. She's um, black, queer, millennial, uh, and doing a lot of hooking up even during lockdown, mostly meeting people on apps. And But it's what fascinated me was all of the relationships were incredibly triangulated with like social media and digital mean so there was a huge amount of like drama that gets played out people post things and then an ex sees the post and starts denouncing the person so there's like this village life quality and i call it like middle march with more radical transparency that's what mark zuckerberg wanted where we all live in a well-lit village it's the case it is very much the case for that generation and I thought it was really fascinating to hear about it. I felt like an anthropologist in all in a foreign country or land. When you say fascinating, though, the reviews suggest that that's the weakest part of the book, that it was boring. Yeah. I and I, I have to admit, I kind of agree because it got so complicated with all these mm-hmm. threesomes and foursomes. After a while, you just kind of lost, it lost my attention anyway. Thanks. <laughs> 
I mean, that's not that's not necessarily your fault. It's just that perhaps this is the narcissistic generation in a collective way of being obsessed with their own love affairs and their own networks, which are really from from the outside pretty boring. You know, I suppose so, but it did seem to me important to talk about like a different generation and the, and those shifts and, you know, possibly boring. I don't know. I myself was, was fascinated by it partly because it was so foreign. And I also do think that, you know, for everybody who is to any degree online, there is this movement in that direction of living your life in public um, and, you know, for the eyes and likes and approvals of the audience. And then I think we kind of fashion ourselves to accrue these likes and approval from this audience. So I thought it was, I mean, I get the criticisms and maybe it did go on. I don't know if it's a criticism. It's an observation that it's just a boring generation, but maybe that's just old farts not being able to appreciate why they're interesting. I mean, I suppose not boring for them themselves, for that generation. Did your, did your student read the book? Yeah, yeah. And they sure. liked it? Oh, they, I liked it. Um, yeah, I mean, I, you know, this was, I mean, I thought Molly Young did point out um, that I felt I had to be a bit more careful in that chapter. I mean, I didn't want to be taking pot shots at this former student, this young woman who had like it kind of exposed exposed herself to me. So maybe there was a more constrained quality to the way that I, I wrote about it. I'm talking with Laura Kipnis, the author of Love in the Time of Contagion, a diagnosis, a cultural diagnosis rather than a medical one. It's a great book, wonderful read, easy to read, uh, won't take much time. The cover shouldn't... Um, the, 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 the cover, though, um, is, is pink and... You might get the idea it's a good book to give to a to Valentine's Day. What do you think, Laura? Should one give it to your uh, romantic other, or is this something you give to an ex? Um, I, I mean, I think it is a bit of a cherry bomb or exploding, you know, a little, what do you call those things, of a book, because it looks innocent and cute. Yeah. Did you pick up the, did you choose the pink or was it the publisher? It was the publisher, but you know, I did have cover approval, and I. I, yeah. I it's an to... ironic pink. Shall we be kind to the publisher? It's a pink with, like with green it. spots underneath. The pink is Laura Kipnis, who is certainly not pink. Uh, Laura, <laughs> you're a professor of film at um, Northwestern. At Northwestern. Um, mm-hmm. So, a couple of final questions for you. Uh, what should we be reading in addition to um, your very pink new book, Love in the Time of Contagion? And what should we be watching, a movie for Valentine's Day? I have to give two. Vertigo, I wrote a book called Digital Vertigo. My own obsession with Vertigo is my own problem, I guess. And also the Before Trilogy, if you're feeling romantic. What movie would you watch and what books should we read uh, for Valentine's Day, Laura? some books i got a little stuck and blocked on the movie thing but here are some books uh suggestions you can think of a single movie to watch um you well, let, me start, movies. let me start with the, the books um, okay because these are sort of a bit all about 
the dark side of coupledom, I guess. Um, so yeah. I really loved A Separation by Katie Kitamura. I haven't had to pronounce it. Yeah, before. we've had that one recommended before. I need to get her on the show. Yeah, it's a, it's wonderful. Um, uh, James Lasden's book, Afternoon of the Fawn or A Fawn, I'm not quite sure. Um, it's an well, it's a it's a short novel, and I think he's a wonderful writer and should and should be read more. And it's partly a sort of post me too book, but about relationships mm. in the past. Um, and I, a classic, or I mean, this isn't new, but one of my favorite books is um, Adam Ross's book, Mr. Peanut, which is also about uh, the dark side of marriage and very much a take on a rear window to go back oh, to good, 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 good. Uh, Hitchcock. Um, I mean, you know, I, I talk about a movie that I really hated, which was, um, that's good. Yes. <laughs> which was, um, oh my God, I'm blocking on it. What, what is the movie about the drinking? Um, Oh yeah. You wrote about that. The, uh, the Danish movie. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, Oh boy. So that's like You are sorry. the last Puritan, Laura. You're against movies about drinking. You're against your boyfriend drinking. Tell uh, give him a message from me. He has my sympathy. Well, I, I'm not a teetotaler myself and I really dislike it as as a mode of uh, being. So I that's that's a longer discussion. And that was actually a great bit in the book. I really enjoyed that. That that Thank polemic you. against the drink the Danish drinking movie that we've forgotten. I don't remember the name of the title. It's by a well-known, um, so well-known director. Sure? I can't remember his name. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, we'll remember it another time. Laura Kipnis, really lovely to talk to you. Uh, congratulations on the new book. Loving the time of contagion, a diagnosis. We didn't really talk much sexual politics. We have to get you back on the show to talk about cancel culture because I know you're pretty provocative on that front too. Real honor. Happy Valentine's Day, Laura, and enjoy the Super Bowl too. Maybe one day they'll be on the same day and we can get rid of them in a single day. Thanks to you 